And when it impacts your school community in that way, I mean, you're almost comatose. And I remember for me, I rem- I just, I remember thinking how, like, how, like, what is this going to, like, what, what is going to be the next step for me? And how am I going to process all of this? Like, how, how am I going to process this for my friends too? Because they were all looking at me again, not because they didn't know what to say to me. They didn't know what to say because they were heartbroken. And they saw the pain in their parents' eyes. And it literally, when I, when I see these things, when I see the school become testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the very first live broadcast of Moving Past Trauma. So live on YouTube, this is exciting because guys, all I got to say is, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Trauma. I'm your host, Collier Landry. So good to see all of you, even though I can't see you, but I see you in the comments over here, which is kind of cool. But I'm so excited because I have been wanting to do this forever. I've wanted to host this show live on some sort of platform. And I was talking over to my people and I was like, I'm just going to do it on YouTube with all this big YouTube explosion. Thank you so much. I want to give a shout out to all my subscribers. Thank you guys for subscribing and a special, extra special shout out to those of you who are my channel members here on YouTube. Thank you so much for your support. And of course, how can I forget about all my wonderful Patreon patrons? Thank you so much for all joining, all supporting this program. And um, I I just love you guys so much. So thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So uh, latest breaking news in the sort of, I guess, true crime. Let me, let me go back a few minutes because this has been a really difficult week in the United States and around the world as things of these nature are. But I wanted to sort of say, how great was it that we could get back to some just celebrity sort of trash gossip trial stuff with the Gwyneth Paltrow case, which as you guys may or may not know, Gwyneth Paltrow is officially $1 richer. Yes, that is correct. She won her case against this guy. I cannot remember his name. I have it here in the show notes somewhere. But uh, she was being sued, for those of you that didn't know, about a ski accident that happened in like 2016. And she chose to fight it instead of just paying this guy. He tried to sue the ski resort. He tried to sue the ski instructor. He tried to go after everybody. And he claimed that he was his life just wasn't the same. And he couldn't travel and do all the wonderful things. Even though I believe it was either today or yesterday, Paltrow's attorney, <laughs> had shown lots of videos and pictures on social media of him gallivanting about the planet. And um, so his quality of living wasn't really that affected, I suppose, for him to be able to get on airplanes and travel around the world and take photos. It's one of the things you got to watch. Social media is, you know, is navigating parasocial relationships in general. And it's something that I have a problem with. I have many people that reach out to me on social media. I try to, to... to just reach back out and respond to people's messages, but it gets very difficult. And then sometimes they get kind of 
angry with me or they think I'm being prevaricative and I'm not. I'm just literally don't see the messages, uh, but I'm trying to get better at that. But uh, yeah, people are just posting everything on social media all the time. So how could you sue someone and say that your quality of life is interrupted? Then your quality of life is pretty much not interrupted. So there you go. Uh, but anyways, yeah. So it has been a very interesting week in the social media realm because uh, it was, was it this week or last week? No, it was, it was this week. Uh, the head of TikTok appeared before Congress. And obviously this has been a very hot button issue since the Trump presidency about TikTok and Chinese spying and all these things. And there was actually a bill that was that came out that I believe was struck down yesterday in the Senate. It was Senate Bill uh, S-686. I actually signed a petition for it and emailed my congressmen, uh, representatives, and uh, senators in the state of California here because it had some really far-reaching, far-reaching things that it was doing uh, that went far beyond the realm of TikTok, like being able to monitor anything that comes out of a broadband router in someone's home and things of that nature. Now, I am not someone who um, has a proclivity for conspiracy theories or anything like that, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But it was just definitely very interesting to see the amount of questions that were leveled at this guy and also how incompetent some of our representatives are when asking these questions. It's just, it was, it was very wild to me. But uh, so anyways, speaking on the social media front, but here we are live on YouTube. So that's what matters because this is a fantastic platform. Uh, so yes, Gwyneth Paltrow won her case against this guy whose name I should probably pull up. Uh, and I'm used to doing this program, as you guys may or may not be aware, where I just talk right to the camera and I read notes <laughs> that are over here next to me, which is sometimes why I'm wearing my glasses. But um, the gentleman who she who she ended up winning against was, a, uh, was an optometrist named Terry Sanderson. So that was an interesting thing. Uh, but I, I just, it, you know, every time you go on YouTube, you see Law and Crime Network, which was the just the place to go for the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. And I thought, oh, wow, this is just, it's so refreshing given the other news that's going on, which we'll get to in a second in the true crime world. Uh, but I was like, you know, a good old celebrity gossip. I mean, they spent eight days on this case, eight days at trial for this thing. I mean, what? I don't know, but I found it fascinating uh, to say the least. <laughs> so uh, anyways, and um, this week also, so for those of you that are fans of the Murdaws and the Murdaugh case and were obs as obsessed with it as I was and my friends were, this week, it's, it's interesting because when you think about the justice system and as someone who has a lot of experience in the justice system from a very young age, it almost seems a lot of times that the justice system, unfortunately, works almost in reverse. And as is the case of this Stephen Smith whose body was found on June 8th, 2015, uh, on the side of a road in like the middle of the low country, like already low country, South Carolina is in the middle of nowhere, but this was like in the middle of the middle of nowhere. When I was raised as a young teenager in Ohio, we call this BFE, but effing Egypt. Uh, but they call it the middle of the low country. So this gentleman's body was found and there was there's a massive conjecture and speculation having to do with this particular case. And I'm sure many of you listeners uh, are all well more versed on this than I am. But at the core of this was somehow how the Murdaws were involved in this case and how uh, SLED, which is the South Carolina uh, Law Enforcement Division, 
how they handled the case. And they came out with a with a press release, I believe, this last Monday that said something that was kind of striking as you as you go through the meat of the of the statement. It said something, and, and this is what it said, which I found interesting. It said, Sled's investigation into the death of Mr. Smith was never closed. It remains a homicide investigation. Progress has been made, and Sled's investigation is active and ongoing, which I think a lot of people had sort of dishearteningly felt that that case had fallen apart or fallen by the wayside, obviously with the spectacle of, you know, obviously the tragic death of Mallory Beach and all the, all the attention that that family has put with their legal counsel on that. And then that getting pushed into obviously the corruption or obviously, obviously the murder of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. But then the exposed corruption, the opioid addiction, everything that just that came out of that case. And it it feels like this was this was the precursor to all that. So, you know, his mother, Stephen Smith's mother, Sandy, she was interviewed in one, if not both, the documentaries that I watched uh, on HBO and then on Netflix. And, you know, this poor woman is just looking for answers and she's talking about her, how her son, you know, wanted to be a physician, wanted to travel overseas and do like the Doctors Without Borders thing. I mean, seemed like a really good hearted kid who unfortunately lost his life and is literally found in the middle of the road. <laughs> and it's very unfortunate, but it does look like for that family that there might be some, I don't want to call it closure because it's never closure. There's so much that goes into a family's pursuit of of that in the legal system. I don't think you ever get closure from any of this. Well, I don't think, I know you don't ever get closure. Just speaking from someone who has dealt with this his entire life, you don't ever really get that perceived closure that you, that people think that you're entitled to or think that is so necessary for you to carry on in your life. It just doesn't happen. You just sort of figure out a way to like hammer your way through it. You're, you know, you're, you're chopping wood, you're carrying water. You just focus on the essentials and like, this is what I got to do. And I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but, uh, and more, but it looks like there's going to be some, some action in this case. They revealed this week that a rape kit was done on his body as well hours after the discovery, but was never analyzed. Um, and there's no confirmation of where this rape kit is or why one was even given in the first place. Because remember, there was a, this was ruled like a vehicular, vehicular, not homicide, but a vehicular manslaughter, an accident where this kid was <laughs> crossing the road or walking in the middle of this, the road and got hit by a car. And now they've, and to say sort of that they never ruled it, they never ruled out a homicide, <laughs> they've been treating it as such is a very interesting sort of uh, twist of fate. But nonetheless, really hoping that these people can get, um, they can get uh, some closure with this, or at least the essence of what closure would look like. And so when they give this, uh, this, this R kit, uh, I realize I can't say the naughty words on YouTube, but the R kit that they give you or SA, because they believe that this person was assaulted uh, in that way. Uh, it is very interesting. So I'm curious to see how this plays out. 
I really hope the family gets some sort of justice. I mean, I don't know what else you could, what they could be. I don't, I don't know. But getting answers is always like that one step closer because for myself, I was always trying to find out like why my father murdered my mother, right? And I, it was a big question on my mind and sort of, you know, for those of you that know them, that know my story, that was the big, the anvil or the albatross around my neck, the anvil over my head for my entire life and trying to find that until I realized that, that really that's, <laughs> you never get that closure. And that's what I ultimately learned. Um, hey, movers, did you know that one in five Americans has learned a new language on their bucket list? If you're one of them, make 2024 the year you finally check it off with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Designed by over 150 language experts, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are your passport to speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Real people, real conversations, that's the Babbel way. Babbel's tips and tools are not just lessons. They're companions in real-life situations. The approachable, accessible content is delivered through conversation-based teaching, ensuring you're ready to shine in the real world. Before Babbel, I couldn't imagine effortlessly ordering food, asking for directions, or chatting with local merchants, and all without consistently checking a language app while I'm on vacation. But Babbel makes it easy, providing the practical skills you need for real-life scenarios. Struggling with pronunciation? Babbel's got your back with speech recognition technology, helping you perfect your accent and sound like a native speaker in no time. Hola. Hola. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash collier. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash collier, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash collier. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I hope that they do that. I hope they get that. Now, speaking of another very high profile case right now, there is obviously this whole, there's this whole kerfuffle in this Idaho four case, which I've touched upon. Uh, I, I posted a video yesterday regarding uh, a conversation I had with a, with a woman named Dr. Danielle Slakoff. And we were discussing the media, uh, the media conjecture, the tabloid conjecture around the Idaho, Idaho four case and how that conjecture and how the amateur sleuths, and there was a big article in Vanity Fair a few weeks back discussing this exact same thing with how everyone was seemingly drawn to the small town of Moscow, Idaho, where it's like the University of Idaho, and that's it. And look, I went to music school at a very small, uh, not a, it was a big school, but it was in a very small town of Athens, Ohio, Ohio University, go Bobcats. And I... Uh, I know what that small town college life is. Like the college is the center of the world. And for those of you that haven't been fortunate enough to, to go to university or go to that type of university where you are literally in a town that is completely centralized around the university, it's a wild experience. So when something that is absolutely devastating as four college students being murdered in their off-campus home, uh, it's it attracts a lot of attention. And the way that the media sort of just on this small town and anywhere, you know, we're talking anyone from, you know, Nancy Grace from the, you know, Dateline people at the top of the pile to, to, you know, online amateur sleuths via Twitter or YouTube or TikTokers all going there to try to find answers. And this particular article in Vanity Fair, for those of you that hadn't seen it, centered around this one bar that's in town uh, where everybody went to. And I'm trying to think what like the one bar that we went to it was on state street 
I don't know. Um, I was like underage when I went to college, but I, but I of course, of course, uh, partook and uh, found a way to make it into <laughs> into into the bars. Of course, illegally. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, the the way that they diverge on this town and the way that these amateur sleuths literally uh, try to expose things and try to come up with their own hypothesis or they hypothesize about what motive is or what the victims were doing. And one of the things that I think when the court of public opinions vitriol or just pure like laser focus it becomes like so myopic right on the perpetrator and what they've done or what they've perceived them to do and what they have already convicted them to do is that it becomes a complete fallout of devastation on everyone that that person has ever been involved with and unfortunately this week it was revealed that there was um that Brian Koberger's two sisters had been either doxxed online or had been outed on where they worked because they were apparently work in the mental health field, I believe. And that these people were, that these women lost their jobs because of this. And apparently, according to news media, uh, Brian Koberger's family has not visited him in jail yet. The family seems to be very removed from this. And it, as someone who has also, when I explain, all, let me just take a moment to say that when I explain all of this to you guys, it is it sometimes becomes lost on me and how weird and unique my my situation was as a child because my father is both the perpetrator and my mother is the victim, and I was the witness, and how I can fall into both sides of that is very. I mean, I feel like it gives me a unique perspective, right? But it also just, it, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks in a lot of ways because, uh, and, I, and I've talked about this in other podcast episodes, but I can empathize with the family because they don't want anything to do with what this has happened, what has happened. They're not responsible for it. So why are they, this man hasn't even gone to trial yet, let alone been convicted. But all of a sudden, we are somehow, uh, these people are held accountable for his actions. And it's just, it's not fair. I know life isn't fair. I know there are many people that might think, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. But these are innocent bystanders. This would be, this could be, and granted, this is a murder. And this is something that is very sensitive. And these are four innocent lives lost. But it would almost be as if your, as if your bro own brother or sister or mother or father was driving intoxicated and killed a kid in the crosswalk uh, because they were intoxicated. You have absolutely no control over that person's, if you didn't feed them the alcohol and give them the keys to their car, that is. But they didn't enable this behavior. They didn't condone this behavior. They didn't encourage this behavior. They were probably just as shocked as everyone. It brings me back to, you know, I've, uh, I have a very good friend of mine. Her name is Melissa Moore, and she is the daughter of the smiley face killer. And she's going to be on the program at some point. We were actually discussing it yesterday. But we were, one of the things that she had to reconcile is when she found out that her father was this horrible person that she just thought was a horrible person because he was a horrible person, not because he had taken anyone's lives. 
the guilt and the shame, and I and I talked about this again in the Murdaugh pieces that I've done, the guilt and the shame that comes with all of that. I've also talked about my my sort of getting over the guilt and shame in my life uh, for what my father has done and what my family has put on me because of that and society in general. But also, you when the per when somebody related to you has taken the lives of other people and caused such collateral damage, it just seems seems rather unfair, to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to adjust this camera, by the way. So for those of you that also don't know, I am a professional cinematographer. So that's hopefully why my stuff looks really good. <laughs> looks really good for everyone. But uh, so now I'm going to adjust this camera and do a couple of things. Uh, I am not on this particular site. Let me see. Let me make sure y'all can hear me first. Somebody's saying, okay. Oh, I see a, a ton of context. Thank you so much. I want to have been on for 18 minutes. And I know there's Danielle Tamaro, who is on my Patreon, who consistently will message me and say, make fun of me about my glasses. Danielle, this is your opportunity in the comments to make fun of me about wearing my, 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 my $5 Amazon readers. Uh, anyways, back to Koberger's family. How people can hold innocent bystanders accountable for something that has nothing to do with them, because they are just... They are victims in in a way that not obviously not the victims who were killed, not the four college students, but their families are victims because they are ancillary victims. And this is something that I became very, that I was very passionate about growing up my whole life uh, is our media or, or, or people's attention in general. And this is long before true crime was ever a thing, by the way, but I would, um, I was very, very passionate about the fact that we would look at a case and we would say, okay, you know, bad guy goes to jail, the state gets his restitution, the gavel hits, we say next, you know, the victim is dead, all that. And we don't really examine the real consequences of violence outside of the sort of core unit of people, right? So my mother is dead, my father goes to prison. That's it, right? You maybe look at me and my sister or my family sort of, but you don't look at like the communities that are affected, right? The small college town, for example, I believe they've demolished this house if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, and you, that often gets lost. And, and also who gets lost is the people that are related to the perpetrator of the crime and to have them lose their jobs is just, it's, it sucks. It's terrible. They're not, it's not their fault. And they shouldn't be held accountable for something. And the guy has not been even been to trial yet. On top of that, also in this week's news about the Idaho four cases, apparently now internal affairs in that Moscow police department has decided to open up a, an investigation against officers' conduct surrounding some sort of evidence in this case too. So, I mean, like who knows? And then this, and this is, this is why I'm not going to get on the soapbox. But I will say this, this is why I think when you go back to things like amateur sleuthing, like people who are doxing people online, people are there so vested in these, in these situations that have nothing to do with law enforcement, by the way, it's not law enforcement, like people who are, who want to solve crimes, who think that they can somehow know more than a trained law enforcement or forensic psychologist or professional does, or somebody who has decades in law enforcement to think that they somehow know something, then they're not directly connected to the case. 
It's utterly fanciful and it's dangerous because things like this also can corrupt a case that's in progress too. And lawyers, you know, and I shudder to think about this with my my father's case growing up because there was no internet, there was no uh, you know no TikTok, no Instagram, no Twitter, none of that. You know, I don't even think the internet internet was maybe sort of in somebody's mind in the ether. But we're talking 1990, and it was just news trucks and newspapers, right? And that conjecture and speculation that would go on, I can't even imagine. And the fact that I was able to have, or my family and 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 my mother was able to have swift justice and how that is almost completely changed now because of so many and lawyers just ride things out for years and years and rack up bills and everything. And we, we saw this obviously with the OJ Simpson murders, of course. And we see this with other cases where they just continually go on and on and on and there's no end in sight, right? Uh, that is a really unfortunate sort of, um, consequence of violence. By the way, I will notice that I have been on for 22 minutes and I was really worried if I could talk longer than 30 minutes. I should know myself a little better than that <laughs> because I am a talker and I think that's fitting for a podcast, right? So uh, sisters lost their jobs. Other true crime updates. So uh, a case that has been very passionate with some of my friends is the case of this uh, little boy, uh, five years old. His name is Michael Joseph Vaughn. Um, now this, this little guy went, uh, he, he is from, uh, I think it's, uh, Fruitland, Idaho, and he went missing on June 27th, 2021. Uh, he has three other brothers and sisters. Uh, he was home alone with his dad. Mom was at work. It was the evening. He, dad went to go attend to the other kids or something. It's a five-year-old kid, right? wanders out. I mean, I wander out in the street, so I, you know, whatever. Uh, he wanders out into the street and he, and apparently he gone to two or three neighbors' houses to try to play with some kids. And so dad lost track of him and he was never seen again. And there was a lot of speculation and there was a lot of, you know, speculation with parents being involved and things of that nature. Last year, I believe it was November of last year, 2022, there was a, uh, a warrant that was served on a neighbor's house who was like four blocks away, but in the same housing development as where these, where this Devon family lived. And this woman, uh, Sandra Wondra, her husband is currently uh, either in jail or waiting trial or is in custody or is in, you know, he's in custody, whether he's incarcerated, he's in jail. Uh, for some gun charges or or some charges of firearm charges issues. Uh, I don't know what I can say on YouTube, but uh, uh, please don't cancel the algorithm. What he He's away. She had apparently made a statement of something that uh, God, the Lord, higher power, spiritual person told them that her husband had taken the life of this poor child. And so they went to this house to try to excavate a body from this backyard. And apparently they hadn't found anything. Apparently also this week it was released that they are now charging her uh, just this week with a failure to report um, a concealment of a, a concealing a murder, <laughs> essentially concealing evidence of a felony and she has two hearings that are going to be scheduled. And the, the thing is, is that 
and again, sorry, the, the quote is failure to report the death of Michael Vaughn. So the police haven't ruled it a homicide yet. They haven't found any remains. The family still doesn't know what's going on yet. They've ruled this as a failure to report a homicide because like she said, a higher power spoke to her, God, whoever said that her husband had killed this little boy. And that's why they execute the search warrant to go in the backyard and try to find evidence and things of that nature. It was a big kerfuffle. It was happening all around the same time as the Moscow, as the Moscow, Idaho incident and, and all these things. So it, it's, uh, you know, it gets lost in the fray, but there was a big update with that. So hopefully there'll be some closure for the Vaughn family because there's just, uh, it's very tragic. And the child has just disappeared. There's no, again, there's no answers, but they're charging someone with a failure to report a homicide. So, uh, anyways, for more information on Michael's case can be found on the Fruitland Police Department website, which is Fruitland, or sorry, find Michael Vaughn, Fruitland, Fruitland Police website or at findmichaelvaughn.com. Uh, shout out to my friend Lana for bringing this to our attention. I wanted to let you guys know about that case. So obviously the big news of the week, um, besides Gwyneth Paltrow winning a dollar, another mass shooting here in the United States and I, and it's a tragedy. Of course, it's, it's horrific. And of course, every time this happens, it, it stirs up debate and I'm, I will get into this debate at some point. I'm not going to get into it tonight about guns and, and the United States. I get so many questions, especially when I'm doing uh, lives from people who are not from the United States that are very, very interested in our gun culture and also very interested in in why these mass shootings happen. And then, of course, we see them in other countries, too. And there's violence that goes on outside of the United States. I feel like a lot of media attention is directed towards that, but really, really it happens everywhere. Um, but this has caused, obviously, a massive amount of debate. There was a lot of, there was protests today at the at the Capitol in Tennessee, at the Capitol building, and people being forced to do things. And there's senators saying, well, what can we do? We're not really going to be able to do anything because people will do crazy stuff. And firearms are a very weird, real part of American culture. They are built into our constitution. So I think about, you know, as far as I know, three children's lives were lost. Th three teachers, obviously the shooter's life was lost uh, in a confrontation with law enforcement. I actually watched, I don't know why I did, but I watched the the body camera footage, um, uh, which was, um, which is scary. That's some scary stuff. And I have never been a victim of gun. Well, I was almost a victim of gun violence. I have had a gun pointed at me in a threatening way, but I have not, um, probably shouldn't have said that actually. My parents are watching, um, <clears throat> but I have had a weapon <laughs> trained on me in a threatening way before a long time ago and hope that never happens again, but I've never been an actual victim of gun violence, but, uh, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. And being a victim of violence when you are a child is is really terrifying. So when I read the when I read the news and I see this happening, it literally it's like an it's like I got into the DeLorean and the flashback and I transported back to January twenty fifth, nineteen eighty nine or nineteen ninety. Sorry, January twenty fifth, nineteen ninety, which is the day that I found out that my mother's body was found and that my mother had indeed been murdered. And I had uh, rightly presumed it was by my father. And I just remember, so 
I'll back this up a little bit. At that time, it was that day, January 25th, 1990, was the my private school that I had gone to is called Discovery School. It's in Mansfield, Ohio. It's still there. We were having the Chinese New Year celebration. And that was something that my mother was very much involved in planning with. She loved Asian culture. She loved Chinese culture. My adopt my sister who was adopted from Taiwan shortly before then, uh, six months, seven months before then, my mother was very into Chinese culture. And at that time we had, uh, in Ohio, we had the Son of Heaven exhibit, I think would travel all around the country, even around the world, which had the actual, um, the actual uh, soldiers from underneath the Forbidden City in, or from the Forbidden City in, um, God, where is it? Uh, Tiananmen, underneath Tiananmen Square, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's where it's from. Uh, and my mother was very into that. And it was something that she had planned. And then when she had disappeared, she obviously wasn't planning it anymore. But I remember going in to the gymnasium during the celebration. And I had just come from the hospital where they had told me that my mother was dead. I came in and I just remember like the younger kids. And, you know, so I was in sixth grade at the time, right? Sixth grade at the time. The younger kids, you know, first, second graders, maybe kindergarten kids were doing like little dances and everyone else was just crying beside themselves because my mother was such a such a, a major influence on my school with my friends, the faculty. She was on the school board. She was obviously planning this event, as I said. And just remember the sort of, the looks of, hopelessness on especially like my classmates right who really knew my mother uh because she would either you know take them to you know practice or she would pick us all up at school and take them home or they would come over and hang out and she would cook them meals or take them shopping or something of that nature right and i just remember how they looked at me and the way that they looked at me wasn't necessarily because of that they were trying to figure out what to say to me because they, they were trying to figure out what to say to me. They were trying to figure out what to say in general because they had just realized a very difficult lesson that a lot of children, thank God, don't ever have to learn. And that someone who that they were so close to had just been taken from them in the blink of an eye, really. And, and, and of course, a lot of kids go through trauma, a parent dies of a, of a disease or, or they lose their grandparents, and, which I lost three of my four at that time. Uh, and, or, you know, they lose a sibling or a best friend or something, something terrible happens and it's awful. But, those are more of the rarities. And when it impacts your school community in that way, I mean, you're almost comatose. And I remember for me, I, rem I, I just, I remember thinking how, like, how, like, what is this going to, like, what, what is going to be the next step for me? And how am I going to process all of this? Like, how, how am I going to process this for my friends too? Because they were all looking at me again, not because they didn't know what to say to me. They didn't know what to say because they were heartbroken. 
and they saw the pain in their parents' eyes. And it literally, when I, when I see these things, when I see this school, because, and, and because this was such a, this wasn't like a high school, this was, I mean, it might've been all ages. I don't know, but I just know that the, the younger victims are like nine years old. Right. So that's around my age at that time. I was 12 or almost 12 at that time. So my classmates were 11, 12, you know, around that age, but I had friends that were, I'm sure were nine, were nine years old. Right. And I, I just remember how lost we all were. And we had a school guidance counselor uh, who, who had come to talk to some of the students and his name is Dr. Dennis Marikas. He's in my documentary. I've interviewed him on the show before. I'm going to bring him back to interview him as well about childhood trauma. But we, we discussed, it, he was there to talk to other kids and, and uh, about other circumstances. He just happened to be there on the day that this news unfolded. And, how it was such a challenge for him and for the children to wrap their heads around what happened. And I hear this and it just, and I can just see all of it playing on in my mind. And I remember seeing my best friend at the time, Tony Timberman and just him crying and just looking at me and all, all my, all my classmates, uh, Brad and, and, and anyways, I remember their looks and it will haunt me for the rest of my life. <clears throat> because at that moment, you know that your innocence is lost. And that I think is the most unfair thing when this occurs. The way that a child is now forced to process, because kids are supposed to go outside, they're supposed to play video games, they're supposed to play tag, hide and seek have interactions with their family and, you know, play sports and do whatever they want to do, read books, collect bugs, <laughs> what have you, do finger painting. They're not supposed to think about what death looks like or what murder looks like. And that the fundamental core of humanity that they, the fundamental cornerstone of humanity that they know, which is kindness, love, happiness, giving of yourself, all that just gets rug pulled straight away. And for me, this, this, I mean, this still is, is something that I deal with in my life. I mean, you can see by my face, I'm literally sort of revisiting all this in my head. And some of the tools that I had to literally focus on right then and there. And I, and I have talked about this before, but I think, and for me, it's not even really fair of me to talk about this because even though, yes, I found out my mother was murdered. I knew that was the case, or I pretty much, I hoped it wasn't the case, but I knew it was the case. Uh, so I was already processing it for 25, 26 days. But the, the work that I had to do with myself and for anyone who's struggling to talk to a child or is in this situation to talk to a child is you have to know that children are really resilient. We really are. And despite these horrific things that happen to these very adult things that happen that we don't really understand how somebody could do this. They'll get through it, but it's going to take so much work and it's also going to take such little 
judgment because everybody wants to is going to want to push and pull and tell these kids which direction they need to go and if something if you know one of the things that i that i had a real hard time with growing up and this started in foster care was being judged for everything as if every outburst every naughty little thing i did everything is a child that it was a normal childhood thing i was a normal kid just being bad i just wanted to do something bad i wanted to it was analyzed under the microscope of the trauma and that's not fair because I just was being a little brat, <laughs> maybe. I was a good kid, but I might've been, you know, I had my times just like everyone where I could be a brat. And I didn't have my mother's, you know, watchful eye, like, nah. But I, you know, for those of you who don't know, I, was, I grew up kind of terrified about my mother. Uh, she would give me this look, the evil eye. I, I knew if I did something wrong, <laughs> I was going to get it. I was going to get punished. And, uh, but you have to, it's it's such a delicate balance to not judge everything that these children will do moving forward without looking at them under the lens of actually of them um of their behavior having something to do with the tragedy that they've that has just unfolded in their lives. Now I'm not saying that it's not, but you have to choose a lot of care. And I am in no way, shape, or form a psychologist, a specialist, a doctor. I am just a guy who has been through this, which I think gives me a little bit of street cred. You have to not project that on them. You have to not project your adult stuff because kids completely, and I'm sure there's a psychologist who'll back me up on that. We, kids, children deal with things differently than adults do. We rationalize them differently. We, we assess them differently. We look at them differently in a way where they're, they're, there's almost a, not a silver lining, but there's still good and there's still hope in the world. It's very easy for everyone. And I posed a, qu a comment or a question on my Twitter yesterday on, on here on YouTube asking how everyone was doing, how their mental health was, because it was a tough week. For a lot of people, it really brings up a lot of trauma. Somebody had mentioned 9-11. I remember when that happened, of course. All this trauma comes to the surface. But we have to be really careful that our adult selves who, who, who get stuck in the patterns of the world is dark, life is horrible, I don't know what's going to go on with my life, why are people so bad? Kids don't think that. They're not to that age they're they're they haven't lived long enough to see that to to they just and they're i hope i'm articulating myself properly looking at the looking at the uh you've invited jj valo's aunt who's that uh Kishi, oh I, I don't know i'm trying to read the comments too without glasses of course uh you can't bring your adult stuff into when trying to assess this because as children, for myself, I never just looked at the world as dark and hopeless and life that won't go on. And I had a purpose in my life, of course, but my purpose also became what drove me out of my trauma in a lot of ways. And I, I refused to look at the world as a dark and dangerous place. I still do. I still do. I just talked about 
some really heavy stuff that I've been through. I still refuse to look at it this way. Now, I don't, it's not to say I don't have my bad days. I 100% have my bad days. And when it's, especially when it's crappy and rainy and cold or it gets dark at early, I'm a, I'm a, I like a lot of daylight type of guy. I like to be very physically active. If I don't really regulate my routine, my trauma starts to sort of get a hold of me. I'll be talking more about, and I have talked about it in the past. I will continue to talk about it because it's part of moving past trauma is you have to really regulate and get yourself into a routine because that's ultimately what does that for you. And I think that maybe even cultivating that for children, because children definitely like routines, routine of going to school, routine of eating, routine of having dinner at the same time every night, routine of going to soccer practice, baseball practice, what have you. That ultimately will help them as well, but they don't look at it the same way. That's my two cents on the situation at this point, because that's where we have to, we have to remove ourselves. We have to give the children the support, allow them to talk about it, allow them to grieve, but allow them to also have the hope in their hearts that everything's going to be okay and that the world is still a beautiful place. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Collier Landry.